from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. And Kendi got pulled over, allegedly because she had a broken windshield, which she did not. And the judge had this just sort of moment where he threw his hands up and he said, I'm done, we're, we're canceling court today. It's not just Missouri, it's not just Missouri. You had cases from all over the country. I'm Sarah Fenske. In 2019, St. Louis Post-Dispatch columnist Tony Messenger won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary. The award honored his work exposing debtors' prisons in Missouri and the exorbitant court fees that kept rural Missourians cycling in and out of jail and stuck in poverty. Now the longtime journalist has expanded his work on this issue into a book, Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice, is out this week by St. Martin's Press. And Tony Messenger joins us today to tell us all about it. So, Tony, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Good to see you in person. It is exciting to have you here. Been a while, yeah. And there's such important stuff in this book. I want to get right to it. You start your book by telling the story of Brooke Bergen. This is such a horrifying tale, but it really sets up this issue that you're talking about. How did she end up in the Dent County Jail? She stole an $8 tube of mascara, uh, got caught, and went to, you know, ended up in the jail, was able to uh, get out for a period of time, um, was being supervised by a uh, private for-profit um, uh, probation company uh, that would regularly drug test her and that sort of thing. And Brooke, like a lot of people in mid-Missouri, has the same sort of drug addiction that you were just talking about with uh, Dr. Menzies. And, and um, she ended up failing a drug test and, mm-hmm. and ended up before the judge again. And the judge eventually, she had pleaded guilty to the crime, been given a year sentence suspended for uh, shoplifting an $8 tube of mascara, which in and of itself seems like a heavy seems sentence. Seems like a lot. Uh, even, even though it was suspended. But the problem with this idea of giving a sentence and suspending it and then putting somebody who happens to be a drug addict on uh, uh, supervised probation by a private company that has a profit motive is that that company needs repeat business. Uh, There's no way she's going to fulfill the terms of that probation. Even though it wasn't a drug offense, she's going to end up failing. She did. She ends up doing an entire year of jail. Wow. I don't end up finding out about her story until after she's out of jail. Now she's done her time, a pretty incredible amount of time, uh, for her offense, but the courts weren't done with her yet. They were just getting started because in every rural county in Missouri, except for two, you get charged a bill when you go to jail. And that is such a shocking thing in and of itself. That was what really got me started on these columns was I didn't even realize that was something that could happen. And it does. It turns out it happens all across the country, not just in Missouri. But what was happening in Missouri and thankfully got fixed in 2019 by both the Missouri Supreme Court and the Missouri legislature is that judges were threatening people like Brooke with more jail if they couldn't come up with the money. Brooke owed $15,000 
And and that is what originally attracted me to the case. I I, I just did the math on eight dollar tuba mascara versus fifteen thousand dollars for her time in jail. It it wasn't a statutory fine. It was just a bill for the privilege of her being in the Dent County Jail for a year, and there was no way she was ever going to be able to pay it. Mm-hmm. And yet month after month, the judge was requiring her to come to court take time off work if she was lucky enough to have a minimum wage job at that time. She Mm -hmm. frequently was unemployed. Um, And 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 stand there and say, well, I got 50 bucks today. I got, you know, the day that 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 I uh, first met her and went to court that she had 60 bucks. She ended up asking a few friends for some more money. She ended up with one hundred dollars. So she paid the judge one hundred dollars that day on on her fifteen thousand dollar debt, got a little bit of a lecture about, well, we'll see you next month. And that's that was going to be her life for the rest of her life is going to judge going to the judge once a month and giving her a hundred bucks and saying, please don't put me in jail. I mean, it's just jaw dropping. And yet what became so clear reading your book, you know, a lot of us like to roll our eyes and be like, oh, it's Missouri. It's not just Missouri. It's not just Missouri. You had cases from all over the country. You had the, this uh, Kendi Kilman. This was a case in Oklahoma that had a lot of parallels to this, something where, in this case, she might not have even done anything wrong in the first place. Takes a no contest plea. Right. In, uh, Kendi lives in, in Norman, Oklahoma, and she's a single mom, just like Brooke is, just like Sasha Darby, one of my other main characters from, from South Carolina. I focused on single moms in part because um, they are the people who it seems have, in so many cases, the worst consequences when the, when the court system system decides to penalize them for their poverty. And Kendi got pulled over allegedly because she had a broken windshield, which she did not. And then after the police officer realized she didn't have a broken windshield, said, hey, can I search your car? Now, you know, a lot of people in uh, our situation, middle class white people would have said, no, you, you don't have you don't have cause to <laughs> search my, my car. You're not going to search my car. Call my lawyer would have been the end of it. Never would have happened. Kendi's a poor person and she's tired. She was just driving uh, home from Arkansas to see her sick grandmother. She said, sure, search my car. They found a pot pipe. In uh, buried in the trunk below the carpet um, wasn't Kendi's. Kendi had just bought the car from her ex-husband who happens to have a drug problem. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no pot in the car. There's just a little bit of residue in the pipe. And she gets charged with possession uh, and paraphernalia and taken to jail uh, and, and ultimately pleads guilty. And like uh, Brooke and like so many people across this country, ends up after a guilty plea with this bill of $1,000 that is all sorts of fines and fees that have absolutely nothing to do with the court system in most cases, uh, have nothing to do with restitution or trying to uh, deter the crime. They're just backdoor taxes that the courts expect generally poor people to have to pay. Mm -hmm. And Kendi has been tied to the court system um, for over a decade because of this. She's a poor single mother who lives on disability because she's home taking care of her uh, disabled son. And and every month has to try to figure out, you know, do I rob Peter to pay Paul? Where do I come up with the money? Do I do I do gas money today? Do I do I buy my prescription drugs or do I pay the courts? And then when she doesn't pay the courts, she gets a warrant out for her arrest, ends up with more costs and having to deal with that. And that's the common reality for poor people all across this country who get 
uh, unfortunately, involved in the criminal justice system and unlike people of means, can't just write a check to make the problem go away. Mm-hmm. And I think we want to believe that in this country, you don't just go to jail for being poor. But what makes your book such an eye opener is people go to jail just for being poor all the time. It happens all the time. And the judges use pretextual uh, uh, reasons to say that, well, we're not really putting you in debtor's prison. We're putting you in jail because you missed a hearing. Well, why'd you miss the hearing? What was the hearing for? Well, the hearing was to collect money on the debt that you owe. You didn't commit another crime. You served your time. You, 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 know, you did all the right things, but you didn't pay that debt. And so we scheduled a hearing and you weren't able to make it because your minimum wage employer wouldn't give you the day off. Um, if you've ever spent time, as, as, as you probably have occasionally, in a courtroom on one of these law days, you walk in and there's 30 or 40 people and they're just waiting for their name to be called. And it takes a really long time. You sit for hours. You sit for hours. And sometimes, you know, somebody just shows up and they're like, hey, I got this notice. I'm supposed to be here. Do you have an attorney? No. Well, you've got some, you know, go out of the room in the hall and call somebody. I mean, it's just this. You, you, you don't go to court in these sorts of cases on these sorts of dockets without taking half a day. Mm-hmm. And in these in these misdemeanor courts that are using most most of their time to collect money. Um, it's just frustrating. I, I, I tell an anecdote in the story that, that Kendi told in the book that Kendi told me about one of the days when she went to court and it was the third or fourth or fifth time she was there just to answer for a warrant that she owed money. And uh, this was in Oklahoma and the judge calls up the first person on the docket and what are you here for? Oh, I'm here because I owe money. Okay, go sit over there. I'm going to deal with, you know, the, the real criminals here. And, and Kendi tells this story of how the judge went through the first five or six people in a courtroom that was full of 30 or 40 people, and they were all there just because they owed the court money. And the judge had this just sort of moment where he threw his hands up and he said, I'm done. We're, we're canceling court today. Y'all can go home. You'll get a notice when, when it's time to come back. And, you know, he could have just waived all their debt. Right. And, and, I mean, and, these people and, have taken off work to be there. Yep. And but but he re- it, it, at least it was this moment where the judge appeared to recognize something about this is wrong. This is broken. I'm not here with these 30 or 40 people to a, to to be a minister of justice. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to keep the public safe. I'm here to be a backdoor tax collector. And, um, you know, that's one of the things in the book that um, I think some judges are going to have a hard time with. Uh, the, the, the judges are sort of the villain in this in this story. This is surprising. I think a lot of people who have critiques of the criminal justice system, they want to talk about the police and they want to talk about the prosecutors. And you've certainly done uh, quite a bit of both in your career. But you point the finger in a lot of these cases to these judges. Right, because the judges have the responsibility in every case to uh, to protect the civil rights of the defendant. Mm-hmm. And what happens in so many of these cases is the judge is just acting as a tax collector. The judge is is not forcing the prosecutor to do his job, is not forcing the sheriff to do his job, but is instead sort of just that person that says, "Okay, well, if you don't if you don't pay the money, you're going to go to jail." And 
judges, even without legislation, and, and, and I argue for a variety of pieces of legislation to help solve this problem, but even without legislation, judges today could put an end to the criminalization of poverty by waiving fines and fees, by refusing to threaten uh, jail to people that owe fines and fees, by having um, the ability to pay hearings that they often skip that case law requires if they're threatening people with jail time. Uh, and, and judges could solve this problem. They could just do it immediately. And um, that's, that's why, you know, some of the judges who are characters in this book are not going to be very happy uh, with, with it when they read it, and I hope they do, um, because I don't think they're fulfilling their oath as, as judges. We're talking today to Tony Messenger. He is, of course, the Post-Dispatch columnist, as well as the author of the new book, Profit and Punishment, How America Criminalizes the Poor in the Name of Justice. And, Tony, there have been some reforms that have come about in part because of your reporting here in Missouri. One of my favorite characters in this book, somebody you write about, a Missouri lawyer named Matthew Mueller, who really fought the good fight on this stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about his battle uh, that he took all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court? Matthew is, is very much... Um, in many ways, the hero of this of this story, he was um, a, a is well. He's not a public defender anymore. He's he's in private practice now. But during uh, the time in which he was battling uh, judges all across the state, he was a young public defender who was hired by the former director of the public uh, defender system, Michael Barrett, to basically file these cases on behalf of poor people who ended up in jail because they couldn't afford their their previous uh, payments of, of, of their, their pay-to-stay bills, their board bills for their time in jail. And so he was going to all of these rural counties all over the state and filing these motions. And he's basically standing before these judges saying, you didn't follow the law. These aren't, these aren't motions in which they're saying uh, the police screwed up. These aren't motions that are blaming the sheriff or blaming the prosecutor. This is a public defender standing before the judge saying, you screwed up. I want you to let this person out of jail. And oh, by the way, you owe them money. And this did not go well. It didn't go well. The judges just absolutely, every one of them shut him down. The irony is to get the, the, the success that he ultimately got at the Missouri Supreme Court level, he needed the judges to shut him down because he needed to have a case that he could appeal. And ultimately he did and, and, and won at the Supreme Court level. But, but how shocking that it took the Missouri Supreme Court level. He lost all the way, everywhere, all across the board until then. Well, and one of one of the points I make in the book is 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 looking at the difference of the kinds of judges that we have in Missouri. So the circuit court judges in uh, outside of the metro areas are all elected judges. Mm-hmm. So they're in that little courthouse on the square, where where the most powerful people uh, politically in town are the sheriff and the presiding commissioner and the prosecutor, who all want that judge to put people in jail so that they can collect money from them. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court judges in, the, in, in Missouri, as well as appeals court judges, as well as circuit court judges in the metro areas, uh, are not elected in the same way. They are appointed through the Missouri plan, which is at least somewhat a bipartisan plan uh, that focuses a little bit more on merit than just election. And so I think it is fascinating, and this has happened in another state now since uh, uh, Missouri did it. Idaho had a similar case where the Supreme Court 
ruled unanimously that what all these circuit court judges do were doing was wrong. Hmm. Um, and, 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 and the law is clear and the Constitution is clear. There's no doubt that what the circuit court judges were doing is wrong, but it took an independent judiciary to recognize that in a in a unanimous fashion. And so to me, I think it's important to look at the fact that the United States is one of the only countries in the world that actually even has elected judges, even though not all of them are. Yeah. Um, I think the way we elect judges in rural Missouri is part of the problem because the judges are facing political pressure uh, rather than acting as independent jurists. So something that you get into in this book, where it's interesting to think about how widespread this problem is, you say of everything you've written about in your career, this is the issue that everybody can get behind. You've heard from from conservatives across the state who are upset about this as well. In light of that, why do you think this continues to linger, that even with some of these reforms, we've been able to get one step forward, two steps back? Because it's so ingrained in the criminal justice system. I mean, ultimately, you're talking about reversing uh, the, the, the horrendous rate of mass incarceration that we have in this country. You're talking about municipalities and counties and states having to recognize that they can't use the courts as a fundraising system. And that leads to consequences. Uh, an, an example of one that I talk about in the book is the $3 fee that has been charged in, in, in uh, courts in, in Missouri. Uh, to raise money for the sheriff's retirement fund. Mm -hmm. It's unconstitutional. The Missouri Supreme Court ruled last year that it's unconstitutional, but it took three or four or five years for that case to make its way in to determine that it's unconstitutional. And so now what's happening? The sheriffs are preparing to go to the legislature to find another way to get that $3 to improve their retirement. I have nothing against sheriffs wanting you know more money, but, but, but the way to do that is generally through the taxpayers not through the courts. And so every time you talk about getting rid of a fee that is uh, built into the criminal justice system, there's somebody on the back end that loses that money and that becomes a constituency that you have to fight as well. The other part of it, I think that just makes criminal justice reform difficult, even though both folks on the left and the right are starting to understand this, is that there's not always a lot of sympathy for the folks who are the worst, who are the victims of this. Mm -hmm. Poor people who maybe uh, have committed some crimes, who, who, who battle drug addiction, who end up in jail. Um, it is too easy in some jurisdictions and for some people to just say, well, they're criminals. Mm -hmm. Never mind that they did their time and we're punishing them, punishing them now and, and increasing their poverty, uh, not because they're doing anything wrong, but just because they're already poor and we can. Uh, unraveling that system is really complicated and really hard. And so even though there's, there's folks on the left and the right who are supporting this idea of decriminalizing the, the parts of the justice system that make it harder for poor people to rise out of their poverty, um, it's a heavy lift and it involves so many different things. It involves bail. It involves funding the public defender system. It involves charging for jails. It involves uh, the tax bases in states like Missouri that have Republicans who refuse to, re to, to ever uh, agree to raise taxes for, mm -hmm. for whatever particular reason. All of those things contribute to make it harder to fix the problem. 
So, Tony, one thing I wanted to just touch on here is we started by talking about Brooke Bergen. And you write about these reforms that went through in the Missouri legislature. You write about what the Missouri Supreme Court did here. And it wasn't enough for Brooke Bergen. Uh, What happened to her? It wasn't enough for Brooke. During most of the time I was writing the book, Brooke was in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was in prison, again, not for for, uh, a a drug offense, but for driving without a driver's license. (laughs) She was driving on a suspended license, which, by the way, is a problem all across the country as it relates to this fines and fees situation. Illinois just reformed their law. Uh, to stop that criminalization. Think about that for a moment. You're you're poor. You can't afford to pay your fines and fees. The state just takes your driver's license away. Well, how in the heck are you going to drive to work in order to pay the fines and fees? So what happens with somebody like Brooke is the system finds another way to, once you're involved in the criminal justice system, it's hard to get away. So she was in prison uh, for about a year during the time that I was writing this book, and we talked on the phone, and we emailed all the time. Uh, she got out of prison in January and a couple of days later overdosed and, and died. And, um, you know, it's, it's just so tragic. I, I believe the system very much contributed to her death. You're, you're, you're not going to uh, treat an addiction while somebody's in prison. Your previous guest just talked about mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and, and so, you know, Having the addiction on top of the poverty, on top of the criminal justice system constantly weighing you down, um, I don't know how you recover from that. Well, this is such a hard topic. Um, In some ways, it's an easy topic, right? We know the right thing to do. But as you say, there's so many people not doing it. There's such incentive to do the wrong thing. And it has such a toll on people in this country. I want to encourage people to read Profit and Punishment. Tony, we just have uh, just about a minute left here. And we've run through our time so quickly here. This is your first book. It is. After years of writing short columns, was this hard to do? It was very hard to do. You know, I mean, I get in a rhythm as a columnist and I write, you know, seven, eight hundred words, you know, four times a week and you get in that habit and then all of a sudden you're trying to write a narrative over 70, 80,000 words and, and you know, I, I, I struggled and I, and, and I made mistakes. I had a great editor who was very good at giving me little prompts. He would send back copy after I sent it to him and just say, it's here, Tony. It's here, but it's not connecting. You need to rework it. And it took me a long time, and um, I hope I hope readers think I figured it out. Tony Messenger, thank you so much for joining us Thanks, today. Thanks, Sarah. Good to see you. This episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering by Aaron Doerr and production assistance from Jane Mather Glass. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.